You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Over the centuries, a great many theories have been advanced about whether a machine can think and feel. My own philosophy is called constructivism. That is, instead of endlessly debating the question, which is pointless, we should be devoting our energy to creating an automaton to see how far we can get. Otherwise, we wind up in endless philosophical debates that are never ultimately resolved. The advantage of science is that, once everything is said and done, one can perform experiments to settle a question decisively. Thus, to settle the question of whether a robot can think, the final resolution may be to build one. Some, however, have argued that machines will never be able to think like a human. Their strongest argument is that, although a robot can manipulate facts faster than a human, it does not understand what it is manipulating. Although it can process senses, e.g. color, sound, better than a human, it cannot truly feel or experience the essence of these senses. Michio Kaku is a professor of theoretical physics at the City of University of New York, the host of the Science Channel TV show Sci-Fi Science, Physics of the Impossible, the host of two radio programs, Explorations and Radio Fantastic, and the author of the books Beyond Einstein, Einstein's Cosmos, Visions, Hyperspace, Parallel Worlds, Physics of the Impossible, and Physics of the Future. His new book is The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. Thank you for joining me, Michio. Real pleasure. This is such a wonderful book. I love this genre you write in, which I would call nonfiction science fiction. You take the ideas of science fiction, the visionary feel of science fiction, the gee whiz sense of wonder of science fiction, then subject it to cutting-edge science and come up with what we can imagine, what we can do, and what we can't do. And I love that you divide this up this way. That's right. When I was a child, I loved reading about science fiction. I used to do experiments on telepathy, that is, reading minds, telekinesis, that is, moving objects with your mind. But I began to realize that all these science fiction stories were bunk. I'm not a telepath. I couldn't move any objects with my mind. I couldn't read anybody's mind. However, I'm a physicist now. Using modern physics, we can now probe into some of the deepest secrets of the living brain. We now have telepathy. We have telekinesis. We can upload memories. We can photograph a dream. All these things were once considered preposterous, but hey, we do it every day in the laboratory now. And this is going to be huge because this is ourselves. This is our mind. One of the things that I love is that in order to get us to the visionary aspects of what you're writing about, you do a great uh, version of de defining where we are at the moment. And I think that you have done a great job at de defining consciousness. And that's not easy to do, is it? 
Very hard to do. Uh, realize that there have been over 20,000 papers written about consciousness by philosophers, theologians, and psychiatrists. Never have so many devoted so much to produce so little. But, you know, I'm a physicist. When we see something, the first thing we do is create a model, a model of a planet, for example, in space. Then we create the model in relationship to the sun and other planets. Then we run the videotape forward. We predict the future motions of this planet. That's how we physicists think. So when I think of consciousness, well, let's break it down. Consciousness, I think, is nothing but the number of feedback loops necessary to create a model. A model of yourself in space with regards to other people and with regards to time, that is, predicting the future by daydreaming. So if you take a look at a thermostat, even a thermostat has one unit of consciousness because it measures temperature. A flower has 10 units or so of consciousness. It registers water, uh, uh, temperature, sunlight, gravity. And then a reptile would have level one consciousness because it's very good at understanding where it is and where the prey is located. Level two consciousness is monkey consciousness, that is, emotions and understanding the social hierarchy of other monkeys. And then level three consciousness is us. We are daydreaming machines. We are prediction machines. We can't help but strategize, plan for the future. That's what our brains do. We constantly predict the future. And, and that, for you, is the definition of human consciousness, the ability to envision a future, your place in that future, and to make decisions based on that vision of the future. That's right. Now, some people would say, ha, there must be some things outside your definition of consciousness, like humor. Humor, I mean, no one's been able to define humor, right? So your theory cannot explain humor. But I think my theory can. Because, you see, we are prediction machines. When someone tells you something, you complete the dots even before they finish. For example, W.C. Fields was once asked a question about youth and activities for youth. The question was, are you in favor of clubs for youth? And then W.C. Fields says, yes, but only if kindness fails. In other words, we complete the dots. Clubs for youth mean activities for youth. No, it means beating youth. And then one of Roosevelt's daughters uh, was asked a question about um, gossip, okay? And she said, if you have nothing good to say about other people, then come sit next to me. Because we immediately say, if you have nothing good to say about other people, then don't say anything at all. She puts a twist on it. So the point is that we anticipate the ending. We complete the ending, and then we laugh when we find out the ending is totally perverted. You know, one of the things that I really like is that your vision of human consciousness, this book is a perfect case of form follows function in that you are, if human consciousness is predicting the future, that's exactly what this book is all about. You have written a book that itself is an example, perhaps, of consciousness. That's right. President Barack Obama is now enthralled by all this activity. He also sees, quote, the future. Last year at the State of the Union Address, he shocked the world of science by announcing the Brain Initiative, the next human genome project. This is big. The Europeans of the United States have already pledged over a billion dollars. That's B with that's billion with a B, not an M. Already pledged a billion dollars to create a map, a complete map of the human brain. 
The short-term goal is to understand mental illness, because once we have a map of the brain, we can see how the map of mentally ill people goes haywire. But eventually, if we create this map and put it on a disk, it contains all our memories, all our dreams and hopes. When we die, that disk lives on. So in some sense, people say, oh my God, this means immortality. It means perhaps we can live forever. Our genome will make our body live forever, and the connectome will make our mind live forever. But as you point out, I think it's uh, very interesting that the Genome Project has given us a dictionary with thousands of perfectly spelled words, but no definition. That's right. That's one of the problems with the Human Genome Project. It's step one. We have this beautiful dictionary. All the words are correctly spelled, but there's no definition to any of these words. We have a complete genome without understanding what these genes do. So the thing is, once we have the connectome, once we have the map of the human brain, we won't know what it does. That's why it'll take many more decades to see which pathways control which behaviors. And that, of course, will take us into perhaps uh, later in this century. But already, we can see how mental illness is a question of miswiring of the brain. Just look outside, and you see homeless people that are talking to themselves, right outside your door practically. This is schizophrenia, but when you put them in a brain scan, you can actually see that the left temporal lobe lights up because they talk to themselves. Now, we talk to ourselves all the time. However, when they talk to themselves, it's without their permission. They are unaware of the fact that their left temporal lobe is generating uh, a voice inside their mind, and they think it's Martians beaming thoughts. So we can actually see how mental illness takes place now. This is amazing. Mental illness, the Bible mentions mental illness. It's been with us since dawn of humanity. But now for the first time in history, we can see how it functions. You know, one of the things that strikes me about what you just said is that while the machines have helped us to see that, it's also a matter of just pure logic of setting up kind of thought experiments that allow us to re-perceive what we've always known. We've always known that uh, schizophrenics hear voices, but it's never occurred to us to, to use that knife of logic to say, wow, I hear voices too. I just don't worry about it. <laughs> and you're aware. We can actually see that the connection, the connection between the prefrontal cortex behind your forehead, that's where you are located, by the way, when you want to know where am I, you are right behind your forehead. And the connection there to the left temporal lobe is, is missing. It's not connected. So the brain does not know that it's talking to itself. For example, some people with OCD wash their hands to the point that the skin comes off. That's how they, that's why they are compulsive and they have this disorder. You can actually see that when the brain feels something wrong with your hands, that it's dirty, you wash your hands and then another part of the brain says, okay, I'm clean, I'm finished. That last part malfunctions. So you constantly have the feeling that my hands are dirty, my hands are dirty. And every time you clean your hands, the part that says, okay, it's clean now, is missing. And so you can actually see where OCD comes from. Now, we have no cures for these things, but it does mean that we've taken the first step toward understanding how miswiring of the brain creates mental illness. You know, one of the things, too, that I really liked was your discussion of Michael Gazzaniga's experiments that determined which parts of the brain did what. There's a great experiment with drawing a banana that I think 
really illustrates how you can use logic to analyze how our brains work. Yeah, the left and the right hemispheres have two, actually two different personalities in the same skull. You can cut that link in epileptics because the relationship between the two, two hemispheres becomes so abnormal that the person goes into convulsions. But when you cut the link, and the two brains are separated, then two personalities begin to emerge. One could be atheist, and the other could be a believer in the same skull. And in the book, I say, what happens if one part of your brain is Republican, and the other part of your brain is Democrat, and you go to the polling booth, and you struggle over your right hand as to who controls the lever? (laughs) Does the left hand control it, or does the right hand control it? And you have a struggle in the polling booth. This is not science fiction. The brain is more sophisticated than we thought. It actually has this redundancy. And and we think that mental illness, uh, like bipolar disorder, which afflicts many actresses, actors, uh, many great composers suffer from bipolar disorder, takes place because of a mis- miswiring between the left and the right hemisphere. And that when one is more pessimistic and the other hemisphere is more optimistic, and they check each other. That's why you get a balance between optimism and pessimism. In these people, the balance between the left and the right hemisphere goes out of whack. And that's why they have swings. They're, they're manic one day, and then next month they want to commit suicide. You know, uh, I, one of the things that's interesting is that um, in order to create this book, you had— got to do something that was really fun, and you discuss this throughout the book, is visiting all these laboratories and talking to all these scientists. I'd like you to talk a little bit about setting up these kind of appointments and then your sense of wonder as a scientist, a physicist, immersing himself in other people's science. Well, for example, I got my Ph.D. at Berkeley at the Rad Lab right next door, and that's where Professor Jack Gallant has done pictures photographing thoughts photographing what you see and actually photographing a dream. So I called the laboratory on the telephone, and I scheduled an appointment, and I talked to many of his postdocs and the people there. First of all, they're all excited. They realize that this is cutting-edge research, photographing a thought. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that would be considered preposterous just a few years ago? And there they were, you know, sitting right behind the screen. So they told me that first they put a patient in an MRI machine. So far, so good. Then the MRI machine gets a collection of 30,000 dots, each dot representing electrical activity of the brain. It looks like a Christmas tree, 30,000 Christmas lights arranged like the human brain. Then you put that into a software program, which analyzes it and constructs a picture of what you are looking at. So they showed me a picture of Steve Martin, and the computer then generated from this collection of 30,000 dots a reasonable facsimile of Steve Martin. If you look at an elephant, you look at a giraffe, yes, yes, you can see that the computer-generated picture is a giraffe, is an elephant. And then if the person goes to sleep inside this MRI machine, the MRI machine will actually generate photographs of your dream. Now, they're very crude. You can't really see much in the, in the pictures of the dreaming. But the very fact that we can even talk like this without us being sent to the, into a mental institution ourselves is amazing. One day, you'll be able to wake up, push the play button, and see a videotape of the dream you had last night. You know, what's so interesting, too, 
about the way you you craft this book is you give us nice little chunks of things we can kind of do, things to think about, and you lead from one to the other. You also do a great job, I think, of plotting this book in that one chapter will end and then just take us directly into the other. So we go from telepathy, which you have all sorts of discussions about, um, connecting our minds over the internet and reading the thoughts of strangers, but the kind of telepathy that we've always seen in science fiction where somebody's just reading somebody else's thoughts, that's not going to happen, is it? Nope, not going to happen. I don't believe it if someone says, I can read your thoughts. No, I don't think so. <laughs> However, when you look at Hollywood movies, Hollywood movies are always you know, a few steps ahead of the science. And I love the movie The Matrix. You know, wouldn't it be great just push the play button and become a karate master instantly? Sounds preposterous, right? But now we can actually record thoughts in mice. The first thought was recorded just last year, and um, we can now take it to the next level of doing it with primates. Uh, primates will perform a certain task. We will record the memory. They will forget the task over time, and then we will reinsert the memory into the primate, and they will instantly remember that. Beyond that is Alzheimer's patients, because the goal for these scientists is to create a brain pacemaker an artificial hippocampus, so that when you press the button, an Alzheimer's patient remembers where they live, where they left their keys, who they are, the faces of their children, so they can become functional again. But even beyond that, hey, why not the memory of a vacation that you never had? <laughs> In Total Recall, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger wakes up and finds out he's married to Sharon Stone, and all the memories of the marriage are fake. <laughs> So it leads to all sorts of Hollywood plots. But this is not out of the question anymore because we can actually begin the process of recording memories and therefore put them on the web. Can you imagine Facebook where all the teenagers get online and they exchange memories of the date they had last night, uh, memories of winning a gold medal at the Olympics perhaps or uh, the trip to Disney World? Uh, it's not out of the question anymore. This takes selfies to a whole new level. <laughs> you know, it also interests me uh, that the way that um, telepathy has so many, you work out, tease out all the implications of these technologies. It's one thing once we have them, but there are all sorts of legal implications and, of course, the privacy implications of telepathy. Right. First of all, I, when I interviewed the scientists at Jack Gallant's laboratory at Berkeley, I asked them, isn't it unnerving if somebody like a CIA agent starts to read your thoughts from a distance? And they said, well, probably that's not going to happen because they have to put probes right on the brain or right on the surface of the skull to get any clear picture at all. Further away, background noise, background noises from KQED radio, television, interferes and it's lost. And so you really have to get right up close to the human brain to do any of these experiments. But there is a question, though, about putting false memories like a vacation into somebody's brain. Our legal system depends on eyewitness accounts. People say, is this the whole truth and nothing but the truth? But if you can put a false memory into somebody, then what does truth mean then? Do you believe someone's eyewitness account knowing that it could be totally fabricated? 
um, our legal system is in jeopardy. So I think there are going to have to be laws passed. It has to be regulated. Of course, it's still too early. We can only do this in mice today. But sooner or later, it'll be done on humans, meaning that we have to have safeguards so that false memories are clearly labeled as false memories and not true memories, or else the distinction between true and falsehood will be blurred, which could have enormous uh, legal consequences for our court system. You also take us to telekinesis. And one of the things that's nice about this book is you loop back always to helping people who have illnesses. The next time you see Stephen Hawking, the great cosmologist, a colleague of mine who works on black holes, realize that he's now lost control of his fingers. He can no longer communicate via a laptop computer. So, because we are physicists after all, we connected his brain to a chip located in his right glass. The next time you see him, look at his right frame and you'll see a radio receiver. The chip receives radio from the brain of Stephen Hawking, converts it into a code that then types on a laptop computer. And so in the future, we'll be able to connect him to a mechanical arm and maybe a mechanical leg so that he will have the gift of mobility. This is not science fiction. The military has dumped tens of millions of dollars to create an exoskeleton that is driven by pure thought. You take a chip about the size of a dime, put it right on top of the brain, and then hook that chip up to a laptop computer. These people coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan who have lost total control of their body, they can now surf the web, read email, write email, operate their wheelchair, operate household appliances, operate a mechanical arm, and eventually a mechanical exoskeleton, and they are paralyzed. Think of all the children that have suffered brain injuries on the football field. Think of um, Christopher Reeve, the handsome actor who was played Superman in the movies and then had that horrible brain accident that cut his spinal cord. Think of all the veterans from Iraq and, and the Afghan wars. They will have the gift of mobility in the future. You know, um, you also talk about the BMBI brain-machine brain interface. So talk about that kind of technology. Right. We can now hook the brain to a machine and then hook the machine to another brain, giving us telepathy. And also we can create what are called surrogates. We also have the movie Avatar, where a person is put in a pod, mentally controls another being. And we thought, ha, that's a science fiction. That's Hollywood gone crazy. But no, we can actually create surrogates today. In Japan, the Honda Corporation has made a robot called Asimo. He looks like a little boy. He's the most advanced robot ever built. He can run, walk, climb upstairs, and even dance. In fact, he dances much better than me. We've been on science specials together, and he is a much better dancer than I am. Well, you can take a worker now, put a helmet on him, and that helmet picks up his brain waves and allows him to control Asimo. The robot is now controlled mentally by a worker. This could be the future of the space program. Why is the space program so expensive? Because life support is so expensive. Why not send robots to the moon that are controlled by an astronaut sitting in his living room, mentally controlling the motions of a robot on the moon? That could vastly reduce the cost of a moon station. 
So we think that perhaps in the future, fireman jobs, construction worker jobs that are very dangerous with a high rate of fatality could be done with surrogates. And that was the basis of the movie starring Bruce Willis that will have perfect bodies, will have superhuman strength, and they will be surrogates controlled by you mentally. You know, one of the things I love is this vision that you have of a construction worker like operating all sorts of cranes at once, orchestrating the building of a building. It's really kind of beautiful. That's right. Think of a conductor. The conductor has to orchestrate so many different parts in unison, but maybe one day we'll be able to have a construction worker build an entire skyscraper by himself, orchestrating surrogates so that these surrogates have superhuman strength, they have uh, gigantic uh, mechanical arms and legs controlled mentally, and the worker simply orchestrates all these motions to create a skyscraper. Now, if you can do this locally, you can also do it over the Internet, of course, can't you? That's right. And this could give us what is called BrainNet. BrainNet could be the next step in entertainment and the Internet. Instead of sending text messages and digital, why not send an emotion? Kids will love it, of course. And this could be the future of the movies. The movies haven't changed for 50 years. Basically, it's a two-dimensional screen with sound. That's it. It hasn't changed for 50 years. But think of what happens if you could feel what the actor feels. If you see a a tragedy or a soap opera, you literally are immersed into that world because you can feel the emotions and sensations of the actor. This is called total immersion entertainment. It was once considered impossible. How do you do that in a a box, right? No. Uh, Over the Internet, if we have a brain net, This could revolutionize entertainment as well. If you want to feel, really, the if you see a movie like Gone with the Wind, don't you want to feel the emotions of these characters? You might. Also, you once again, I really like your focus on science so that the kind of telekinesis where, for example, in X-Men, somebody like lifts a nuclear submarine. You point out that that would take a little bit more energy than a single human could muster. Right. The the bottleneck in all of this is a portable power pack that allows you to carry all these feats out. One of my favorite Star Trek episodes was when they landed on a planet and they met a god. Apollo, a sun god, who had all these fantastic powers, can move things with his mind, and had tremendous abilities. But Captain Kirk and uh, and uh, Spock said, "Now wait a minute. You know, we're scientists, right? There's no such thing as gods. He must be a human, accessing a power source that allows him to do all these feats. If we destroy the power source, he becomes a normal human. And that's what they did in that episode. And I thought it was so clever, because in the future we will have the power." of gods, but it'll be because of technology, not because of mysticism and lore and legend. You know, too, I I love your ability to transform popular culture and movies and science fiction into, you know, and to take those into the realm of hard physics. So I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the way you use popular culture in this book and in your other books to make the stuff really fun to read. Uh, that's right, because, um, first of all, I'm a science fiction junkie, <laughs> okay? 
And I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for special effects, right? I just love watching these special effects. But then I cringe. I cringe because, of course, they, they modified the laws of physics and they get all the facts wrong. <laughs> but still, I, I feel like a kid feeling the thrill of these things. And when I was a child, I saw the movie Forbidden Planet. That's my favorite science fiction movie. And it's based on the idea that far in the future, there's a race that created the ultimate machine. The ultimate machine is a machine that makes dreams come true. Anything you can think of, boom, the machine creates. So that is the ultimate machine created by this very advanced civilization. And when they turned it on, the very same day, they disappeared. The whole race just died the very day they turned on the machine. And the whole movie at, tries to ask the question, what happened? They were such an advanced civilization. How could they possibly die at the moment of their greatest glory? And at the very end of the movie, they finally give you the answer. When they turned on the machine, they fell asleep. Because you go to sleep. And when you go to sleep, all your nightmares come out. And the nightmares become reality because the machine takes anything that you dream and makes it real, and they all committed mass suicide. And so my attitude is one day when we have the power of a god, don't fall asleep. Yeah, don't wish for your dreams to come true because that includes the nightmares That's right. (laughs) You know, I love you when you talk about memory. And what's interesting is the anatomy of the brain the, the part that that plays in memory that we can see as a result of the physics of the, of the uh, MRI machines. That's right. In fact, there's anomalies that we have super geniuses that do these fantastic abilities after an injury to the left side of the brain. There's several recorded cases, well-documented. One guy had a bullet that went through the left part of his brain. Another person hit his left head on the bottom of a swimming pool when he dived uh, too quickly. And afterwards, they emerged as super mathematical geniuses with photographic memory. Now, after this interview, do not go home and get a hammer and hit your left side of a skull trying to become a super genius. These are very rare accidents. But we study these people. And one thing that we found is that the brain not only records memories, obviously, but it also erases them. We used to think that memories die out of their own, but that's not true. No, you have to have a separate erase mechanism. Now, in these people, the erase mechanism is broken. They see things and they never forget. And you could ask them what happened 30 years ago, uh, May 2nd, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they'll tell you that they were reading a book on page 320, and they'll recite the book. This is incredible. How do they have this power? Well, when you scan the brains of these people, we have many theories coming out, but one theory is that these people have forgotten how to forget. They don't forget like ordinary people. And we've also analyzed people with Asperger's. We think that Isaac Newton, the greatest scientist who ever lived, had Asperger's syndrome. They have almost no social skills, but enormous mathematical powers. And if you want to see what Asperger's people look like, watch The Big Bang Theory on CBS television. They probably have Asperger's syndrome. You know, um, you also talk about enhancing our intelligence. That's something that we've always dreamed of. We'd take a smart pill, we'd put on a helmet, we'd jack in. Talk about the reality versus the science fiction. Well, first of all, we can't do that yet, but we're making inroads. First of all, a forgetful pill. 
Um, the forgetful pill uh, does not give you amnesia at a certain spot. That's what Hollywood movies would like you to believe, that you get hit in the head and then you me- erase memories at a certain spot. It doesn't, memory doesn't work that way. But forgetful pills are now being tested in the laboratory for people with traumatic memories from war, for example, that haunt them, that make them dysfunctional as a consequence. So we can have some relief for those people with these horrible memories of war or a tragedy that took place. And then we have the possibility of perhaps augmenting our memory. I mentioned the brain pacemaker. Perhaps one day we'll push a button and learn calculus. Think of all the courses we flunked in college. We may be able to relearn that material by the injection of memories into the hippocampus of the brain. We've now created an artificial hippocampus. The hippocampus of the brain is located right in the center of the brain. It controls our memory. Uh, Short-term memories are converted into long-term memories. And we can now create artificial hippocampuses that uh, would recreate artificial memories that could be planted into the, into the brain. And then, as I mentioned, we have the super geniuses uh, that are called savants. If you go to Kennedy Airport and you land there in Terminal 1, look up and you'll see this incredible, beautiful mural of the entire harbor of New York City. All of Manhattan lit up. That was done from scratch by a person who went into a helicopter once just once, and memorize the entire skyline of Manhattan. And there it is at JFK Airport when you land. So we may be able to duplicate this kind of behavior if we can understand how the forgetting process can be subverted. You go beyond just the normal states of the brain, memory, and some of these kind of normal psychic powers that we thought about and that we've achieved. And you you get us into different states of consciousness. And it, you, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I, I love this idea of being able to photograph dreams and get in and, and understand what is happening. And what you describe is that there's literally like a screen on the inside of our skull. Yeah, this is kind of amazing that if you were to open up the skull, and this is not such a traumatic experience, by the way, because the brain has no pain sensors. You can literally open up the brain, and the brain feels nothing because there was no need to have a pain sensor in the brain, right? And you look at the very back of the brain. That's the visual cortex. It turns out the visual cortex has a screen back there, a screen, just like a TV screen. And you can actually see actually see images projected on the back of, of the brain. And so projecting thoughts into images is not such a far-fetched thing because the brain actually does have like a little TV screen in the back of the skull. And so now with dreams, we can do this whole process with dreams, and we begin to realize that dreams, which was once considered beyond the realm of science, is now being seriously looked at by scientists at Max Planck University in Germany where they have now proven that lucid dreaming is a reality. It's actually possible to be awake when you dream and consciously control the direction of the dream. That was once considered fantasy, but now we've proven it in Germany with a brain scan of a person who's a lucid dreamer. And Buddhists for hundreds of years have written textbooks about how to train yourself to become a lucid dreamer so that you can control the direction of your own dream.
They say, for example, before you go to bed, write down all the exercises that you've done to try to remember to control the dream. When you wake up the next day, you forget the dream in about three to four minutes. Immediately write down the dream when you wake up. Do this for several weeks, and after a while, you will begin to consciously control the dream. And you say that it's not unfeasible that we'll be able to enter other people's dreams as well. Yeah, that's what Leonardo DiCaprio did in the movie Inception. It sounds preposterous, right? But actually, no, it's not so far-fetched. First of all, when a person's dreaming, we'll be able to put the dream on a PC screen because we scan the brain and the images can be decoded by a computer. So you're looking at a PC screen, and then if you want to enter that dream, you have a video camera videotape your image, and then put that into a wire, which goes to his contact lenses, and the image is then shown directly onto his eyes via the contact lens. When you dreamwalk, you incorporate what you see in reality with what you are dreaming. And so people who are sleepwalkers actually meld reality with the dream simultaneously. And you can do that with contact lenses that are videotapes of what you're doing. And so then when you look at this PC screen, your image, you, will appear on the PC screen, just like in the movie Inception. And you will walk around. You'll see fantastic trees and vegetation and clouds, bizarre things, because logic has been thrown out the window. Your, uh, your prefrontal cortex is shut off when you dream. And therefore, logic makes no sense at all. As random memories start to appear and disappear, it might be fantastic entering someone's dream and walking around. One of the things that uh, is pervasive in this book is the technology. And one of the things that you uh, say is that size matters. I mean, at one point right now, we have MRIs that are like giant tunnels you have to lay in. Pretty soon, we'll have them on our cell phones. That's right. I'm a physicist, and you can calculate the sensitivity of the magnetic field and its resolution. That's why MRI machines are so huge, because you have to have a uniform magnetic field. However, we physicists have Maxwell's equations. We know the equations of magnetism. We can now work with small magnets and use supercomputers to flatten them out. We don't need big magnets anymore. And the smallest MRI machine, get this, the smallest MRI machine is built in Germany. It's the size of a briefcase, a small briefcase. And it takes gorgeous 3D pictures of the inside of your body. Well, why stop at the head of briefcase? We can now take it down to the size of a cell phone. And so in the future, you'll have more computer power in your medicine cabinet than a modern university hospital today. You'll be able to take your own MRI scan. So in the future, your wallpaper will be intelligent. You'll go to the wallpaper and say, I want to talk to RoboDoc. Boom. An image of a doctor appears in your wallpaper that is artificially intelligent, designed by IBM. And you talk to it, and it gives you a medical diagnosis. And then the doctor says, I want an MRI, I want an MRI scan. No problem. You go to the medicine cabinet, MRI your body, and RoboDoc gives you an instant analysis. And think of the cost that will be saved when you don't have to always go to the doctor's office for simple kinds of emergencies. This could be one of the solutions to the ballooning cost of medical care. RoboDoc and MRI machines the size of a cell phone. I really like how you work out the economic consequences of all these various technologies because it's they're fun to talk about and the things you can do, you really do a great job of in, inducing the, the sense of wonder that you get when you read like the Foundation Trilogy. 
But you also bring it back to, you know, the real world where jobs and, and lives are affected. Think of workers who are thrown out of work because a new technology comes along. Workers have to retrain themselves. They're out of work. It's a lot of human suffering. Why not simply retrain workers by uploading memories of the new job via a brain pacemaker? That could revolutionize the economics of our society because, of course, technology is not going to go backwards. The world is not becoming less technological. Duh. It's becoming more technological. And some people are going to be left in the dust. This could give us retraining of workers. And students, of course, could learn skills by uploading calculus and mathematics and stuff like that because those are skills are very hard to learn. And so that could have an immediate effect on the workplace. Plus the space program, if we send surrogates into outer space, that will change the economics of space travel because life support is the single most expensive aspect of the space program. And then some people far in the future think we'll have expensive starships like the Enterprise taking us to nearby stars. Well, the Enterprise would bankrupt the United States to build. Very expensive to build a starship. I say that once we have our connectome on a disk, why not put that connectome on a laser beam and shoot the laser beam into outer space? Pure consciousness could colonize the galaxy at the speed of light. That was a dream of Isaac Asimov. He wrote a short story. His favorite short story was that pure consciousness would roam across the universe. Maybe we'll do that. One day, if President Barack Obama's Connectome project comes to fruition, we'll put that Connectome on a disk and send it into outer space at the speed of light. You know, this book goes beyond just human consciousness. You talk about uh, artificial consciousness and artificial intelligence and the, the way we develop it. I'm reminded of a quote from Stanislaw Lem where he said that some he wrote was writing a, one of his little essays set in the future. And he said that halfway through the 21st century, the Pentagon gave up on trying to develop artificial intelligence, but instead looked at artificial instinct which appeared millions of years earlier and was perfectly adequate to do a lot of work. Yeah, well, we made a mistake 50 years ago. We thought that the brain was a digital computer. <laughs> a big mistake. The brain has no windows. It has no operating system. It has no CPU, no subroutines, no programming. So what is the brain if you don't program the brain like a computer? The brain, we now realize, is a learning machine. It's a neural network. It rewires itself after learning every task. And how do learning machines operate? They bump into things like insects, mice, rabbits. They bump into things and learn how to navigate in the real world. That's called the bottom-up approach, a walking like a mouse. The top-down approach is the approach we used to have 50 years ago, thinking that we can program all the laws of logic, all the laws of walking on a disk, and put that disk into a robot. Nope, that failed dismally. The Pentagon spent billions of dollars trying to create a smart truck and a smart soldier. All of it totally wrong. But now on Mars, on Mars, we have one of these devices. Instead of looking like a mechanical man, which is what we thought would walk on Mars, it looked like a bug because it's the bottom-up approach. And so now we're trying to integrate all these different approaches. But now we have a theory of consciousness that I mentioned. And level one consciousness is that of an insect. And that's where robots are today. They are level one conscious beings. They have a long ways to go before they have emotions, which would be level two, 
A long ways to go before they can see the future like we do. That's level three. All robots today are level one. And that's why I don't think that robots are going to take over anytime soon. You know, you also talk about uh, this idea of in or, instead of trying to uh, build a robot that's like a human, you talk about reverse engineering their brain, which is not as easy as it might seem. Yeah, you know, the brain already exists. So some people say, why bother to reinvent the wheel? Why not simply take apart the brain and build it like a clock? You take apart a clock and you say, ah, that's how the clock works. Well, the brain (laughs) turned out to be a lot harder than we thought. It's 100 billion neurons, as many stars as there are in the Milky Way galaxy. If you were to build a computer that can duplicate the brain, the computer would be the size of a city block. Think of a city block made out of supercomputers. It would require the energy of a nuclear power plant, and to energize it and cool it, you would need a river. And yet your brain operates with 20 watts of power. So the next time someone calls you a dim bulb, realize that's a compliment. It's a compliment that you are a dim bulb because the brain is so efficient, it it actually needs less energy than a light bulb. There's a lot of thought that we may be able to take our minds and upload ourselves into computers. How close are we to that? Well, the dream is immortality. For example, President Barack Obama's billion-dollar brain project that the Europeans are also working on uh, has a goal. The first goal is to understand mental illness. But once we have a disk, once we have a disk with all your emotions, your memories, a complete map of the brain, we might combine it with your genome. So your genome plus your connectome is you. Your genome allows you to create a baby version of you, right down to the nearest cell. The connectome allows you to create a carbon copy of your brain, brain 2.0. That's where the connectome or the brain project is going, brain 2.0. And when you die, that thing lives on. So maybe one day, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids will go to a library, push a button, and there you are. You have survived. All your memories, your personality quirks have survived. And you will have a very intelligent conversation with your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids because you are immortal. You will live forever. And you will actually feel and get the juices going because you can live a new life through a surrogate. So you will not be simply a software program dancing inside a computer. You will live the life of Bruce Willis in the movie Surrogates. You'll be handsome, you'll be super strong with superpowers, and you'll be immortal. And you take us to a vision of minds as pure energy, and this is something straight out of Asimov. You're a physicist, and you say seem to think it's possible. Some people ask, what is the soul? I mean, who are we anyway? Well, first of all, I tell you that when you want to know who you are, you are basically sitting right behind your forehead. That's your prefrontal cortex. That's where all the computations are being done. But then the question is, well, when you die, (laughs) does it all turn to dust? I mean, if we have all this information to recreate people, then consciousness, in some sense, is information. The soul might be information. What is the Genome Project? The Genome Project can lay out every single gene in your body necessary to create a baby, which is your twin, an identical twin with none of your memories. But what is the genome? 
the genome is information. That's all it is. It's just computer code, uh, 3 billion base pairs. That's the computer code. You can put that on your credit card. But your connectome is much more complicated. That is all the connections of your brain, the connectome. But that is also information. So in some sense, it may be possible to have a disk with all the information necessary to create a carbon copy of you forever. And so then the question of theology, religion, existentialism, all that come into play because we have to answer the question, who are you anyway? Do you die when your physical body dies, but yet carbon copies of you, identical carbon copies of you can survive? I mean, this has religious and theological implications. And you also take us to the next step. You're a quantum physicist, and that uh, leads us to a, a rather different interpretation of what what is possible. So I'd like you to talk about that, the different worlds, the Schrodinger's cat, and the way that these play out in terms of understanding just who we are and our ability to ever really understand who we are. Right. I give two definitions of consciousness. One is ordinary consciousness of people, that consciousness is all the feedback loops necessary to create a model, a model of yourself in space with regards to other people and with regards to time. I call that the space-time theory of consciousness, which I propose in my book. But there's another consciousness, quantum consciousness. And this gets us into all sorts of bizarre philosophical debates that Einstein and the giants of physics would argue about all the time. Einstein spent 30 years struggling over this question. And it basically goes down to the question of a cat. If you put a cat in a box, the cat is in a box connected to a gun. The gun, in turn, is connected to a Geiger counter, which is connected to uranium. Now, uranium is a quantum mechanical thing. Whether it fires or not, there's a certain probability. So when we describe uranium, we describe it as one state that fires, another state that doesn't fire, and we add the two together. But you see, if the gun fires, it sets off the Geiger counter. I mean, if the uranium fires, it sets off the Geiger counter, which sets off the gun and kills the cat. Therefore, and here's the killer, to describe a cat in a box, we physicists have to write the state of the cat who is alive, and add it, add it to the state of the cat who is dead. Now, that is crazy. That is insane, but that's what we do. I'm a physicist, and we have our grad students do this all the time. That's how we build MRI machines, your transistors. This conversation, this very conversation over the Internet is a direct byproduct of the transistors that are doing Schrodinger's cat constantly because they exist in a never-never land that is neither dead nor alive. Now, you may say to yourself, that's nuts. What you do is you open the box. But you see, if you open the box, that's an observation. So observation determines existence. But observation requires consciousness. Therefore, some people say consciousness is more important than physical reality. The consciousness, in some bizarre sense, determines reality. Now, Einstein thought, this is nuts. <laughs> I mean, dead cats and live cats exist simultaneously. You are neither dead nor alive. And consciousness is required for existence. This is crazy. But hey, Einstein was wrong. 
This is how we build transistors. This is how we build the internet. This is how we build a GPS system. Modern economics, the wealth of the world today, depends upon a cat. And we physicists still debate this cat, you know, 80 years after it was first proposed. I've been speaking with Michio Kaku. His new book is The Future of the Mind. Thank you for joining me, Michio. It's been a real pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.